log entry. June 23rd, 2016. This marks the sixth stop of the Narrow Century, a podcast of irregular tales, and despite our tribulations at the Ford, spirits remain high. Supplies are holding, and best estimates suggest we'll be able to make up the lost time in short order. With summer fast approaching, we should make solid progress in the coming months, but I'm still worried of the prospect of winter. It seems a long way away, but it's a season of mysteries that I can't keep out of my dreams. In any case, it's time for the log proper. Recorded, marked, and notarized. I hope it meets with your approval. Tonight, I want to share one of my favorite stories with you. It's a true story, actually. Certain details may turn out to be apocryphal, exaggerations, embellishments, and additions that got lashed onto the side of it by the people who told me, or maybe the people who told them. But the body of the story is true. And in the most meaningful of ways, everything I'm about to tell you is true as well. Factual? Uh, Just enjoy the story, okay? Anyway. This is the story of Sir Ernest Shackleton and the ship named Endurance. It begins back at the dawn of the 20th century, and as an explorer, Shackleton was feeling a bit at a loss. Even though that seems like the distant past to many of us, in many ways, the modern world was mapped. The continents were all discovered and at least loosely charted. Steamships, radio, telegraph lines, almost before anyone had realized it, technology had made the planet a much, much smaller place, and the old world was giving way to a new one. For most people, this was fantastic, as you might imagine, but for a man like Shackleton, it was supremely disheartening. He wanted to walk on ground that no man but he had tamed, see sights and vistas that nobody but he had beheld. For him, there was no greater glory than in the fact of accomplishment, not titles or money or even prestige exactly. Above all, Shackleton wanted to do. The last frontier seemed to lie at the bottom of the world, the South Pole. In 1901, Shackleton accompanied Robert Falcon Scott on the Discovery Expedition, forced to turn back after a year on the ice. In 1903, Shackleton led the Nimrod expedition, but was again forced away by the bitterness of the Antarctic winter. His near victory won him great acclaim back in England, but it tasted of ashes. Not long afterwards, the final race to the Pole went to Norwegian Roald Amundsen, leaving Shackleton's former commander, Robert Scott, to freeze to death just a few short miles from base camp. Back in England, Shackleton traveled the lecture circuit, discussing his, Amundsen's, and Scott's expeditions, and through all that time he brooded about Antarctica. He craved the danger of that dead continent, the joy of accomplishment. And so he hatched a new scheme. He began his plans for the Trans-Antarctic Expedition, a journey that nobody had even considered before, and with good reason. 
His plan was not only to reach the South Pole, but to cross the entire continent from Western Hemisphere to Eastern Hemisphere. Sure, it was technically only as far as a round trip, but this expedition would have to be made without the opportunity to lay in stores and camps as they plotted their course. It would be a voyage into a vast and lethal unknown, and it would require the most careful of planning, the most able of men, and a ship fit to challenge the ice-bound seas. He commissioned her from one of the last of the great wood shipwrights, who insisted that every man working under him was both master builder and master sailor, and every aspect of her construction was designed with the greatest of care. Every beam was cross-fitted for maximum strength. Her hull was nearly two feet thick of the thinnest place, with twice as many frames as an average ship, with every frame being double thick, pound for pound the toughest vessel of her kind ever built. The ship was under construction, the plans were laid, and the word went out for able-bodied men. Shackleton took out an ad in the London Times which read, Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. Naturally, in short order, there was a line of applicants that stretched around the block. In the end, Shackleton narrowed them down to a 26-man complement, that is, 26 men and one cat. The carpenter, Harry McNish, or Chippy, brought along his tiger-striped tabby as the ship's cat. The two were so inseparable that the cat was swiftly nicknamed Mrs. Chippy, despite the fact that he was male. The human crew consisted of nineteen able seamen and six scientists, a geologist, a physicist, a biologist, a meteorologist, two surgeons, and a photographer. The pay was roughly $240 a year for the former and 750 for the latter, though Shackleton felt that coming along on the expedition was payment enough. At last, the route was planned, the crew was set, and provisions were laid in, and the ship was completed. Originally to be named Polaris, Shackleton decided at the last minute to change it. Days before their departure, the ship that would carry them to one of the most taxing voyages in history was renamed Endurance, after the Shackleton family motto, Fortitudine Vincimus. Through endurance we conquer. And so they set out from Plymouth Harbor, 26 crewmen, one cat, Shackleton, and an as-yet-undiscovered stowaway, Percy Blackborough, on the 8th of August, 1914. Mere hours after their departure, however, they received a disheartening transmission when it was discovered that Britain had entered World War I. After a brief, dark discussion, the crew came to an agreement. They would radio back to Britain and place the Endurance and her crew at the Navy's disposal, despite the financial ruin that aborting the expedition would bring. Not long after sending their message, however, they received an answer of just one word. Proceed. So south they went to Buenos Aires, where they discovered their stowaway and accepted him into their crew, where final supplies were brought on board, final plans were made, and final farewells were said to the world outside the ice. Onward to Antarctica. They looped further south into the broad bowl of the Weddell Sea, where Shackleton was disturbed to see pack ice far to the north. They wound their way around the thicker patches of ice, a more and more difficult prospect with every passing day. Financial issues had delayed their departure by several weeks, weeks that now seemed to make all the difference. 
The Endurance was the toughest wooden ship ever built, with the possible exception of the ship that Amundsen had used to gain the pole, but even it was not invincible. Despite their best efforts, one morning the crew awoke to find that the ice had closed in on all sides of them. The great, unstoppable forces of the polar sea had clenched their fist, so that, as Shackleton put it in his journal, they were trapped as surely as a nut in a bar of chocolate. They drifted like that for days, weeks, months, carried inexorably by the tidal forces of the Weddell Sea. Sometimes the pack ice would break up enough for them to attempt to cut their way through to open waters, two dozen men on the ice with saws and pickaxes. But there was never enough time. They drifted back away from clear waters, and all through the winter of 1914, through most of 1915, the icy sea was tightening its grip and even the mighty boards of the Endurance were groaning under the pressure. The final day for the ship dawned. The end had been approaching for some time, and still it came too soon. The pressures became too great, and the whole of the Endurance buckled and cracked in the grips of the ice. They had moved most of their supplies off of the ship a week earlier, but that hardly made it easier. All they could do was watch, as the jagged spears of ice sheared through timber and canvas, crushing and swallowing it whole, and leaving the entire crew, Mrs. Chippy, and all their sled dogs, stranded on the deadliest continent on Earth. Or rather, in the middle of the deadliest sea on Earth, with no ship. Shackleton devised a plan. They had salvaged the lifeboats and set them aside on the ice well before the endurance went down, so now they set to work using the remains of crates and what timbers they could salvage from the wreck to fashion the boats into semi-aquatic sleds. Quite aside from getting back to civilization, their first concern was getting to land. No easy task. Measurements of the sun told Shackleton their likely position, and he plotted a course for the very nearest spit of possibly useful land, Elephant Island. As they gathered up their supplies and prepared themselves for the bitter trek across the pack ice, Shackleton cautiously approached Chippy, the carpenter, with hard news. The journey would be too long and too dangerous to care for many of the weaker dogs, and too dangerous to care for Mrs. Chippy, his cat. Shouting ensued, and a fight threatened to break out, but Shackleton's point stood. It would be a kinder fate to end the cat's life here, than to let it slowly starve or freeze to death in the Antarctic wastes. In the end, McNish fired the pistol himself, though he would never forgive Shackleton. It was November of 1915 when they set out for Elephant Island, switching between dragging the supplies across the ice and taking to the small stretches of water they came across. They had been aboard the trapped endurance for so long that they found themselves trekking into their second winter, without the benefit of walls to shelter them from the biting winds. And there were worse terrors than cold alone. One night, as they lay camped on what they thought to be a stable chunk of the pack ice, Shackleton awoke without really knowing why. He took a walk amongst his slumbering crewmates, examining the horizon for any sign that morning would be there soon. This being the Antarctic winter, none of them had seen sunlight for days, at best catching a glimpse of its reflected light on the underside of the clouds. At that moment, there was a sudden and deafening crack, and the ice floe that they were on split nearly down the middle, directly underneath a man sleeping where Shackleton stood. Bag and all, the man tumbled into the black waters that surged below that fissure, but Shackleton dashed forward, placed one foot on either side of the crack, and hauled the man up and out again. 
Moments later, whatever current had split the ice reversed, and the crack sealed itself shut again, with hardly even a seam to show that it had been there. If Shacklin had not happened to wake up at that exact time, the man likely would have simply vanished without a trace. On the 9th of April, after four months of travel across the pack ice, the whole shelf that they had been trekking across split apart, and Shackleton frantically ordered the men into the lifeboats. They rode for five days, non-stop, surrounded on all sides by a churning and inhospitable sea, until at last they reached it. Elephant Island. Barely more than a barren gray rock jutting up out of the icy sea, but it was land, and they lay on its pebble beaches for a long time, thanking God for making such a beautiful island. Not one of them had set foot on solid land for more than a year and a half. They did their best to set up a base camp, rudimentary shelters, storehouses, fire pits, mostly dug out of the sides of the hills because timber was at a premium. Many members of the expedition wanted to break down the lifeboats for more shelter, reasoning that they would be no good in crossing the vast ocean that lay between Elephant Island and South America. Instead, Shackleton ordered that the carpenters get to work on fortifying the boats, essentially combining the two most intact vessels into a larger one. Elephant Island was shelter and home to a penguin population that they could hunt for food, but it was far out of the way of any shipping lanes, and it was likely that they could be marooned there for decades unless somebody got word to the outside. Shackleton selected five men for this journey, plotting their course across hundreds of miles of stormy seas in a boat hardly twenty feet long. On the crew was John Vincent, Timothy McCarthy, Tom Crean, Frank Worsley, the captain of the Endurance, and Chippy McNish. Chippy and Shackleton were still bitter over their clash at the wreck of the Endurance, but both recognized that the carpenter was their only chance of keeping the ramshackle boat from being ripped apart. They set off at the end of April with only three weeks of food. Shackleton knew that if they hadn't reached the island of South Georgia in that time, then they would be hopelessly lost anyway. You can't even begin to imagine that voyage. Think about the seas that they were traveling, that narrow band of ocean between the tips of Africa and South America and the northernmost coasts of Antarctica. Open sea the whole way round the globe, leaving the wind nothing to do but stir itself into a band of constant storms and hurricanes. Every day they would take navigational readings from the top of a lifeboat, pitching on 20, 30, 40-foot swells, knowing that at these distances, with a target as small as South Georgia, any error could send them careening hopelessly off course, dooming both them and their companions back on Elephant Island. On the fifteenth day, though, they spotted it. The cliffs of South Georgia. In the middle of a hurricane that elsewhere swamped a 500-ton steamer, their little lifeboat limped its way to shore, dashing its bottom to pieces, seriously wounding two of its crew, Vincent and Chippy. But it got them there. They had made it. There was only one problem. They had landed on the uninhabited south side of the island. With their boat in ruins and time short for their wounded compatriots, Shackleton, Crean, and Worsley resolved to make the 32-mile climb over the mountains that dominated the middle of the island. It was a trip that had been skied over by some of the whalers who lived on the island, but they'd never taken the path that Shackleton proposed, and they had never tried it on foot. Without waiting for the storm to break, barely waiting to swallow a few morsels of food, Shackleton, Worsley, and Crean set off. 
The next time that anyone would attempt that hike was 1955, following more or less the route that Shackleton plotted. The man who followed in the explorer's footsteps said, I have no idea how they did it, except that they had to. Three men of the heroic age, with fifty feet of rope between them. And in thirty-six hours they had crossed those thirty-two miles, and staggered into the whaling settlement on the north face of the island. It was in the pre-dawn haze, and together the three men staggered in tattered furs and ragged beards toward the house of a man that Shackleton knew. He pounded on the door for two minutes until the friend finally came to answer. And when he threw open the door, he did not recognize Shackleton, who appeared more like a caveman than a member of the Royal Geographic Society of London. The whaler asked the explorer, Who are you? And Shackleton fell forward, clutching at his friend and weeping. They had made it. It was the 20th of May, 1916. It would be years before Shackleton would manage to rescue the rest of his crew from Elephant Island. But in the end, every single one of them that had set out from Plymouth Harbor survived the ordeal. Watch the morning rolling Paint the hillside gold Dust it glimmers in the dim Seems to know I'm getting old Days they pass me by one by The Narrow Century, Episode 6, Fortitudine Vincimus, was written and performed by Gordon Graham. Music was provided with permission by Petunia and the Vipers and Run On Sentence. For written material and further episodes, visit narrowcentury.com. Feel the desert suck me dry, split my skin wide open, raven circle. Up on high, beg me, are you broken? Thunder calls me out. Where are you, old black lightning? I long to scream and shout. Feel that dark grip tightening.